Well, hello, friends. Welcome to the tent. Yes. Oh, man, this is so much fun. So much planning went into these weeks, and we are just so excited. This, uh, this past Wednesday, I was having lunch with a pastor friend, and he said, dude, you guys are going to be in tents for like eight weeks. I said, yeah, that's the plan. And he goes, that's going to be really, really rough, isn't it? And I looked back at him, and I said, well, you're familiar with the Old Testament, right? And he goes, well, yeah, I'm a pastor. I said, well, you know, the nation of Israel, they were in tents for 40 years. We only got eight weeks, and he rolled his eyes at me, and I thought, my tent jokes are awful. That's, that's <laughs> all that means. But anyway, we begin a new series today that will carry us all the way, hopefully, into the new auditorium. And what I wanted to do is take some time this summer to remind us all of the story at the heart of Keystone's mission to help people find and follow Jesus. What we're going to do for the next eight weeks is explore the first accounts of the life of Jesus. There are four of them in the New Testament of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it might be fun, if you're looking for a summer challenge, to read through these four accounts of Jesus' life as we're kind of unpacking some of the highlights on our weekend, uh, weekend time together. Uh, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they each contain an account of the life of Jesus. Just a heads up, when you get done with Matthew, the first one, Jesus has died and has come back from the grave. And then when Mark happens, he's a baby again. So just so you know, because the first time I noticed that, it was later in life than I should have noticed that. I'm just going to tell you. So anyway, uh, trying to help you out there. But to set um, the stage for our conversation today, I want to read you a section of an email that I received fairly recently. Um, it's from somebody who'd been visiting Keystone and had a question about us. Here is a section of that email. Dear Brady, for most of my adult life, I never attended church regularly. I grew up in a religious environment where it seemed like only perfect people were welcomed. And at this point, a few of us are ready to moo like Christian mooing. You're going, mmm, right? That was, mmm, yeah, because you had that going on. Yeah. Um, and then he says this, I wasn't perfect, so I never felt welcomed. Well, six weeks ago, my neighbor invited me to Keystone. It was an incredibly disruptive experience. <laughs> now, when you email the pastor, it was an incredibly disruptive experience. The pastor's stomach drops because it's like, that could be good or bad. Let's keep reading. Uh, for the first time, I felt free to bring my mess with me into church. I felt encouraged to ask questions and be honest in my spiritual journey. And I find myself wondering, can church really be like this? I mean, to be honest, it feels a bit too good to be true. And, and I've actually heard this from people who are returning to church after a very, very long time. Like there was a church that they left in their childhood and they're back and they happen to find Keystone and they're like, really? You know, this seems, there's popcorn. I don't know what to do with it, right? It's just, it's just bizarre. I had another person come to me a few weeks ago and said, you know, they really love Keystone. They're here every week, but they wanted me to know they're still attending their other church because they're not sure if Keystone counts. <laughs> it's, it's like, if there's a punch card, it's only half a punch. And it's like, oh, you know, we'll, we'll take it, you know? And so, ah, so anyway, all of that raises for me a really great question. Um, what did Jesus have in mind for his church? And that really is a critical, critical question for all of us to consider, but it's an incredibly personal question for me because of how Keystone's story 
intersected with my story. Um, as many of you know, I was a part of Keystone's early days, shortly after graduating from the University of Michigan. And it was the mid-1990s, and this is going to be a stretch for you, but in the mid-1990s, Grand Rapids did not need another church. Can you believe that, right? <laughs> but what happened was a group of friends came together who believed that Grand Rapids needed a different kind of church, a place where anyone was welcome to find and follow Jesus a place that encouraged you to bring your doubts and your questions and your concerns, a place where you didn't have to be perfect or meet some sort of performance standard, a place that believed that God desires a relationship with everyone everywhere, and a place that wouldn't treat anyone like an outsider. And I remember being a part of some of these conversations and thinking, boy, this approach really could make church almost irresistible, and I also remember the day that I was having lunch with the founding pastor, Gene DeYoung, and we were at that place where all great conversations, decisions, etc., are made. Boston Market, are you with me? Yes. Through some terrible mismanagement, we have lost access to the mac and cheese. I'm still not real happy about that, but that's how it goes. But I remember sitting, talking to Gene and saying, you know, this is so different than any sort of church experience I've ever had. Where in the world did you guys get the inspiration for Keystone's approach? And without missing a beat... He gets this big smile across his face, and he goes, Jesus? As in, we got it from Jesus, like silly question. It, and, and then he said, but don't take my word for it. Read it for yourself. And so I went into the New Testament with fresh eyes and asking the question, what sort of church would we want to build if we wanted to reflect what Jesus seemed to model? And so I began reading, and here's what I found. Jesus disrupted the expectations of religious people over and over and over and over again. He was provocative towards them, and he was frustrating to them because he invited everyone he met to follow him. Messy people, imperfect people, rich people, poor people, damaged people, traitors, people who felt like they had gone too far, people who had said the wrong thing at the wrong time, people who'd done the wrong thing at the wrong time, people who'd done the wrong thing and weren't sorry about it, people who did the wrong thing and were sorry about it, people who needed a second chance and were convinced they would never get one, people who believed that God wanted nothing to do with them because of what they did. And Jesus' message and mission came to these people like a breath of fresh hair. And you should know that Jesus' mission and message were unprecedented in the ancient world because historically, religion has divided the world into insiders and outsiders. Everyone needs to fit into one of the categories. A religion forms when a group of religious leaders develop rules and regulations and expectations, and then as people sort of come into their orbit, they say, okay, here's what you need to change, here's how you need to conform, and then when you change and when you conform, you can be an insider just like us. Moreover, if you believe the right things and do the right things, you can be confident that God loves you and God is for you because we say so right? That's how it goes. Now, on the other side, if you behave poorly, then you'll find yourself on the outside. You can't be one of us. Your behavior, past and present, disqualifies you from God's love and God's favor, once again, because we say so, right? That's, that's the way of religion. But Jesus, 2,000 years ago, comes with a very different message. In fact, he's born into a Jewish world and a Jewish religious system that was obsessive about categorizing people as insiders or outsiders. 
The religious leaders in the first century were a group of individuals called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees had made rule-following, obsessive rule-following, their full-time job. They ruthlessly guarded the boundaries on their behavior, and they judged those who didn't behave as they believed they should. They saw it as their responsibility to be set apart from the world and holy, other. They were to be different. And so into this world, Jesus brought an incredibly disruptive message that God desires a restored relationship with every person ever. There are no outsiders when it comes to the love of God. No matter what you've done, you're not too far gone. And in fact, your heavenly father wants to adopt you into his family. He wants you on the inside and it's impossible to disqualify yourself from the love of God through behavior. And again, this was like a breath of fresh air in the ancient world. And I would argue it's still a breath of fresh air today. There was another part of Jesus' message, though, that was a real showstopper in the first century. And it went like this. It's possible to follow all of the rules and actually miss the heart of God. Like you've moved so close to the tree, you've lost the forest, you've lost the point. And Jesus actually accuses the Pharisees and teachers of the law in his day of this very thing. A man named Matthew, who wrote the first account of Jesus' life in the New Testament, uh, records for us the seven woes. Jesus actually is addressing a group of religious leaders and says woe to them seven times. All right, I just want to read you a section. It's a little bit longer, but I think it's just a riot. You get an idea. Jesus gets pretty hot about this stuff. Here we go. Uh, he says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Now, a hypocrite is an actor. It's somebody pretending to be something that they're not. He says, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You're obsessed about pushing people outside of God's kingdom. He says, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And then when, they, when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you. Jesus, buddy, right? <laughs> I mean, this is not the way to make friends and influence people. I mean, stuff like this, I mean, this could get you killed. That was a pastor joke. Can't say it. It's a slow burn, but there you go. Yeah. He says, you give a tenth of your spices, mint and dill and cumin. In the Old Testament, it talked about something called the tithe, meaning you take a tenth of whatever you have and you give it back to God. And so these Pharisees, in their attempts to be holy and to follow the law obsessively, would actually count out grains of spice, mint and dill and cumin. He says, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law. And you're like, I wonder what those are. He tells us, justice and mercy and faithfulness like you're great with the counting spices thing but like you've missed it the whole thing is about loving people and you're supposed to love them justice mercy and faithfulness are reflections of that love he says you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former so it isn't that the spice thing is wrong it's just man you've missed the bigger picture then he says this you blind guides you're the ones leading the people right and you don't get this you don't see it he says, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. I don't know what that means, but isn't that great? He's like, camel swallower. Like, what did he just say? I don't know. So, okay, a little bit more. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous or right with God, living holy lives, but on the inside... You're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. It's like Jesus says to them, in your attempts to be holy, 
you've missed the heart of God. You've missed the point. Can you imagine religious people missing the point? Maybe some of us have experienced that. Yeah, in our lives, that still happens today. And some of them are really well-intentioned when they're doing it, but, but they're missing the bigger picture. Here's what's fascinating. When you open those accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, you see this message of Jesus that God is for everyone over and over and over again, that no one is beyond the reach of God's love. And so what I'm going to do with the rest of our time today is show you what I believe to be the most incredible invitation Jesus made to someone. And to be clear, we don't have all of them recorded, but it's the, the most incredible one we have a record of. And it's recorded by a man named Matthew, who was the recipient of the invitation. So the setting is the Sea of Galilee. Here's a picture of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, absolutely beautiful body of fresh water in the north of Israel on a clear day. You can see across it, so don't think Lake Michigan. Uh, but this would have been the setting, maybe a village or a town along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And here's what Matthew tells us. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. And just pause. Uh, I need to note something obvious. Matthew was sitting at the tax collector's booth because he was a, don't think too hard, tax collector. Right, so that's his job. And that meant something to the first readers of Matthew's account that's often lost to us because in the first century, people hated tax collectors. They were horrible people. It, it would be like a modern equivalent would be like if uh, they wrote, Matthew was an 18-year-old who sold drugs to middle school girls behind Speedway. Okay? I labored for that one, let me tell you, right? You're like the guy you want to hit with your minivan, though you can't, you know what I mean? That guy, right. So to Jewish people, you can't really hit, so I know, I know, okay. So I'm really violent today. I don't know what's going on. Yeah. So to the first Jews, tax collectors were outcasts because tax collectors were traitors. They weren't allowed in the temple in Jerusalem. Their mamas weren't proud of them. You know, generally, they only hung out with other tax collectors. Here's why. Uh, the Roman Empire was the global military superpower in the first century, and it stretched from England to India. And so in order for the empire to function, they needed to collect taxes. And so what they would do is they would go into a territory like Israel or in the north of Israel, and they would find individuals who would bid amounts of money to become the tax collector for the area. And if you got the bid, then your responsibility was to set up shop and collect tax, either at a crossroads or at a market uh, bridge taxes, there were all sorts of different taxes, and Rome would set the amount that needed to be taxed, but then they permitted you to charge as much extra as you wanted in order to make yourself more wealthy. Well, if you're a religious Jew in the first century, you hate Rome because of the already oppressive tax burden, and then one of your own people steps across the other side of the table, is the one collecting the taxes and ripping you off. Nobody liked tax collectors in the first century. And one day Jesus walks up to Matthew as he's sitting near the dock collecting taxes. And you should know he has a few of those first 12 disciples with him, not all of them yet. We know Peter was there. And here's what he tells us. Jesus went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Just two words, follow me, he told him. Ooh, follow me. And the stomach of those other disciples who was following dropped. Did Jesus really just say what we think Jesus said? Because See, Jesus was a rabbi in the first century to say, follow me. It was like an invitation to step to the inside, to do life together, to learn together, to, to sort of journey together. 
And so if I'm there and I'm Peter, I, I'm a little bit shocked because I'm, I'm thinking like, okay, Jesus, I'm with you and that's cool. But if he's with you now, then I'm sort of with him and I'm not with him, right? My mama told me to stay away from people like him, right? So, so obviously we, we have a little, little problem here. But Jesus simply says, follow, follow me. And 2,000 years later, we read the account because I think it carries a powerful message. Just notice with me, there's a lot of things Jesus could have asked Matthew to do. And most of them would have been way too hard for Matthew to consider. Most of them would have cost him too much or required too much. But Jesus looks at Matthew and he just says, follow me. Check out Matthew's response. Um, Jesus went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at tax collectors with follow me. He told him and Matthew got up and, and followed him. Notice what Jesus didn't say. Okay? Jesus didn't say what other religious leaders of his day would have said. Uh, would have gone like this. Uh, if you're willing to blank, then you can follow me. There's some stuff that we're going to need you to start doing, Jesus or Matthew, like, like right now, but like precondition to the relationship, but that's not what he says. Or maybe this. Um, if you're willing to, if you'll stop, then, then you can follow me. I mean, there's, there's some stuff. I mean, before we enter any sort of formal relationship, you've you got to clean up. And that's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say change. And then you can follow me. That, that's, not, that's not his message. And again, if I'm Peter, I'm standing there and I'm thinking, a Jesus, that can't be that simple. Not for him. Not, he's gone too far. He's done too much. It can't, it can't be that simple for him. And we're going to find out in a minute that some religious people, professional religious people were watching. And they'd been shadowing Jesus. They were fascinated by Jesus. He seemed to have the power of God in his hands. And they were concerned about Jesus. And as they watched this encounter, they were stunned. You can't just say, follow me to a tax collector and make him part of your group, but that's what Jesus, that's what Jesus did. And this is the same invitation Jesus extended over and over and over again to all kinds of people. It's an invitation to start following. Now, as Matthew's account continues, the story gets even better. He says this, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, right? So Peter is upset that Matthew's even been invited to be a part of the group. Now he can't even stand it. They're in his house, right? They're having a conversation. No one tells anybody's mama that we were in his house, right? Because my mama told me tax collectors have cooties, okay? And you stay away from the tax collectors because they have cooties, and we're in the house, and I can't believe this, and I tried to talk to Jesus, and he is not listening to me. We're at his house. Jesus, don't you understand what this could do to your reputation? And I think Jesus would look back at him and say, I'm not nearly as concerned about my reputation as I am I want the opportunity to build a relationship with Matthew because that's how this thing started. Matthew tells us, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him. And Peter's like, are you kidding me? It's a tax collector potluck. This is unbelievable, right? I mean, you... I mean, one is bad enough. Now he's got, and sinners, it's like, I love this too, because like the tax collectors have apparently been kicked out of the sinner group. <laughs> There's like a union. They're like, yeah, you guys are too bad. You're out of here. Your own designation. Tax collectors and, and the guy who wrote it was the tax collector. So good, right? Yeah. And, and so this is, just, this is just an absolutely stunning, stunning reality. Jesus wants to build relationships with people that, that everybody thought were way past the ability for God's love to reach them. This is a big deal. Um, if you're new to Christianity or just exploring it, this is a big deal if you've been out of church for a while or you got kicked out of church. Uh, Jesus was incredibly comfortable with messy people, incredibly comfortable with people who weren't anything like him. And when you read the accounts, they were comfortable with Jesus. And we, we've said it this way in the past. It's worth repeating. People who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. 
and they liked him. And this is great news if you aren't a religious person because of Christians. You should know if you've ever felt anything but accepted and loved, it's not Jesus' fault. He was incredibly comfortable with people who were nothing like him. Jesus would like you. He wouldn't be put off by your sins and your past. He'd look at you and he would just say, from right where you are, right here, right now, would you? Would you follow me? That's how this thing starts. And as the story continues, we find out Jesus is being shadowed. Um, so it goes like this. Well, when the Pharisees saw this, and you're like, oh, wow, okay. So now the religious leaders who have been shadowing Jesus, now, I mean, they're, they're there right outside the house. They would never go in the house. That would not happen. But they're watching, and apparently the disciples are sort of coming and going because there's a little conversation Matthew records. Uh, when the Pharisees saw this, as in that Jesus was having dinner at a Pharisee's house with other Pharisees and sinners, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Like, okay, we're a little confused. Jesus is like a professional holy guy. We're like professional holy guys. Jesus follows the rules, more or less. We follow the rules, right? He's not hanging out with us. He's hanging out with them. He's not spending his time with insiders. He's going to those on the outside. Why would he choose to be with people who are nothing like him? Jesus explains. On hearing this, so I just imagine they're, they're at the potluck with the tax collectors and sinners. Matthew's sitting next to Jesus, right? Pharisees ask the question. Jesus hears the question. Here's what Jesus says out loud. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And Matthew's like, awkward, right? Did you, just, did you just tell me that I'm sick and that my friends are sick? I'm kind of offended. And I think Jesus would look back and go, oh, really, Mr. Tax Collector? I mean, seriously, moment of truth, right? You are sick, right? And, and so are your friends, and you know it. You're not even allowed in the temple. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So, but then Jesus continues. But go and learn what this means. Now his conversation turns. He's talking to the Pharisees. So I have not come to call the, the righteous, but, but the sick. And he says, and now he says to the Pharisees, but go and learn what this means. And this would have been so offensive to the Pharisees. All they did was learn, right? They obsessed about the Old Testament laws, the 613. They ranked them. They shaped their life around them. And Jesus is like, no, no, you gotta, you gotta go and learn what this means. And he quotes something they would have known from an Old Testament prophet named Hosea. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's like he says to him, guys, it's, there, it's been there all along. You've zoomed in so close to the trees, you've missed it. Your whole life is about sacrifice and ordering your life around what God wants. But listen, what God wants ultimately is that you love people. Justice and mercy, that's the name of the game. Not counting a tenth of all of your spices. Like, wow, right? So I, and he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I've come to demonstrate that with regards to the love of God, there are no outsiders. And that's why when you read the accounts of Jesus' life, he doesn't just want to be with people who believe the right things and behave the right way. He wants to join with people who believe the right things to, to do right and to call those who don't yet believe. And this idea has been at the heart of this place. Now, not this place. We're in a tent, I know. But this place, right? For like almost 25 years. This was the heart that launched Keystone. And again, it's an idea that comes directly from Jesus. We want to be a church where everyone is welcome to join us. Whatever their mess, and wrestle with what it means to find 
and follow Jesus. We think we've been called to partner with him to pursue those who don't yet know him, those who don't believe right, don't behave right. We think we're called to reflect the heart of Jesus to our community and to our world. And there's all sorts of implications to this, um, this idea, not only to us as an organization, but, but to us as individuals, as we think about the friends and those that we have over to dinner. And it's like, do we have people in our orbits that are far from God for whatever reason? Maybe they bailed from church because of Christians, and a lot of times that's a good idea, right? But, but what would it look like to maybe engage some people in some intentional faith conversations, not pushy, not, you know, but just to say, I, I feel like this is supposed to be a part of not only my church, but maybe my, my personal life as well. And maybe they need to hear that there is a message that Jesus has for them that has been just lost in a lot of fog for a lot of years. Because unfortunately, if you look at church history, the message was often like this. It was the Pharisees' message. Change, and you can join us. Change, and you can join us. But, but Jesus came and flipped the script. Jesus said, join us, and you'll change. I'll take you right where you are, right here, right now, and then invite you to take the next step and the next step and the step after that. And I know your background's a mess. Everybody's background's a mess. And that's why there's grace. And that's why there's a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth chance. Like you cannot disqualify yourself from the love of God. He pursues you. He wants to be restored to you. Join us and you will change. I want to close by reading one more section of an email. Um, and when I get e some emails, like I get crazy, I run around the office and read it to everybody, and I'm like, yes, like this. So here we go. Um, After spending most of my life at a church, I have been estranged from the church for the past eight years. So um, as you know, the church can be very judgmental for those of us that have been through a divorce. He says, I've accepted God's forgiveness and grace, and I've been ready to find a church that accepts me, us. My wife and I look forward to attending again and are hopeful we may have found a home. Once again, thank you and your entire team for making us feel so welcome this morning. And again, I just, that's like, whew, right? I mean, that's it. That is, that is exactly the sort of place that we want to be. And oh, and, and there's a backstory, and I don't know what the backstory is, right? And it's, but that's not what Jesus said. Just, would you just, just come follow? Let's pick up the pieces together. The good news this morning for all of us is that whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you believe, Jesus invites you to follow him because with Jesus, there are no outsiders when it comes to the love of God. Would you stand? I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning, um, we just say thank you. Thank you for the difference that this place has made in so many of our lives, and we cannot even imagine um, the, the stories that have been impacted that aren't gathered with us this morning. We just thank you. We thank you for the light of this place, and as we look towards our future and we look towards the new building, um, we just pray that you would continue to be pleased to draw people to your son through us, through us as individuals and through us as a community. We celebrate this morning the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love you showed the world by sending Jesus for us. I pray that for all of us, we would rest in that reality and that we would all 
ask the question, what does it look like to take my next step in following? So we bless you, we celebrate you, we thank you, we love you. In the matchless name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Amen. All right, friends. Go in peace. Have a great day.